Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The words of Torah we're dealing with this morning are Parshat Bo, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Parshat Bo begins, Bo el paro, come unto Pharaoh. So the commentators have asked for a long time. Why is it stated this way? And when we're in the first year of the triennial, we talk a lot about that. But we're not. We're in the second year of the triennial cycle, so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. We're going to start at the <clears throat> the informing of Moses that there is to be another plague, and this is the devastating uh, final coup de grace, the slaying of the firstborn. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring but one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After that, he shall let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you out of here one and all. Tell the people to borrow, each man from his neighbor and each woman from hers, objects of silver and gold. The Lord disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. Moreover, Moses himself was much esteemed in the land of Egypt, among Pharaoh's courtiers and among the people. Moses said, Thus said the Lord, Toward midnight I will go forth among the Egyptians, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a loud cry in all the land of Egypt, such as never has, such as has never been or will never be again ever be again. But not a dog shall snarl at any of the Israelites, at man or beast, in order that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Finish that out. Okay. Then all these courtiers of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Depart you and all the people who follow you. After that I will depart. And he left Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. Finish out 11. Nine. Oh, now the Lord. Oh, now the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, in order that my marvels may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron had performed all these marvels before Pharaoh, but the Lord had stiffened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go from his land. All right. <clears throat> so again, we are fairly familiar with this. Um, it is a complicated scene. Uh, it doesn't really match up. So the rabbis have to go to great lengths to make this all work chronologically uh, together. Uh, So God informs Moshe that God is going to bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And after that, God will let them go free. Uh, And not only that, but uh, Pharaoh's going to not only let them go, Pharaoh's going to like drive them out after this. Um, And God here instructs the people through Moses, to borrow each of them from their neighbor uh, objects of silver and gold. And, of course, we're told later uh, that 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 happens. And God disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people so that they would give them lots of stuff. Moreover, Moses himself uh, was much esteemed in the land of Egypt among Pharaoh's courtiers and among the people. After all, Moshe has been at the center of all of these, right, fantastical things that have happened. Um... And this is, of course, where we get the silver and gold and gemstones and all of that to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and and as 
unfortunately. That, also, exactly, uh, Laura the calf. That's the real miracle here. Is. <laughs> that the Egyptians gave these slaves all this silver and gold. <laughs> all right. So Moshe tells the people that this is what God says, that towards midnight I will go forth among the Egyptians and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the millstone and all the firstborn of the cattle. So people and animals, doesn't matter rank, doesn't matter who you are. In this case, it's equally devastating um, to the household. And there shall be a loud cry in the land of Egypt. Where, where, where have we seen this before? Where have we seen? At Sa'aka. Saka, the cry, the crying out. Oh, when who cried out and God heard, and that's what made God act. Thank you. The Israelites <laughs> let out a great saka, a great cry, and then God says, I have heard the saka of the people. It is, and in rabbinic tradition, it is the saka that moves God to act, to free the people. It is there, it's the the outcry of the innocent, the suffering of the innocent that makes God respond. Here's the dark black irony is that the suffering of the sort of semi-innocent um, is what's going to now cause a tsa'aka in Egypt, right? So Pharaoh, you didn't listen to the tsa'aka of the Israelite people. So now, you and through all of this, right, it's been a long a long thing. We read it very quickly, but like some people want to say this took a year, all of these plagues, right? So this is going on for a long time, and Pharaoh continues to to not allow the people to go. And so the, the ultimate end of that is the tsa'aka of Pharaoh's own people will be the, the end result. And I was thinking a lot about this text. Um, we just can't help but read text in the context of our time, right? And I was thinking like that, it's really Pharaoh, right? That Pharaoh, in his absolute refusal to do what he doesn't want to do as a ruler, it is Pharaoh that brings on Pharaoh's own people incredible amounts of suffering. Yes, I know God is a factor here. I'm not trying to deny that. I'm, but I, I, usually, I usually wrestle with the God piece way more than I do this year. This year, I really... I'm getting it that it's like this is this is what Pharaoh has wrought on his own people out of an absolute stubborn out of an absolute narcissistic inability to see anything other than his way as a possible right way forward for Egypt. And as a result, right, devastating horrible things happen to Pharaoh's own people. Um I think it's relevant to today. <laughs> so exactly. I mean, I, you know, I'm reading this. <laughs> I'm reading this novel that this I don't know. I started you know on the plane. You read stuff that you don't read anywhere else, right? I was reading this David Baldacci novel that's um, called The Hit, set in in one of the characters is in North Korea, uh, and like so this description of you know a, a third of the population is in these camps that they'll never get out of, and they're essentially concentration camps, and everything is. You know, everybody's going to rat on somebody else, and the supreme leader is the greatest of all. And if you say anything against the supreme leader, and the suffering, and I don't, I don't know how much of this is true or not. I'm not, I don't know that much about. It, but just reading this book is like the suffering of those people 
And a leader who refuses to acknowledge, like, just this is the way it's going to be because this is the way I want it to be and completely ignoring the agony of their own people. You know, they bring this on their people and it's just, it's, it's, it's horrible. And our world is full of it. It's not, it's not just now. It's, you know, it's been full of it. But I, for the, this year, it just feels a lot to me like I'm really, I'm really angry at Pharaoh. <laughs> like for, for just refusing, right, to see any other possibility than what his own narcissism tells him is the way it has to be. By God inflicting a plague on all of Egypt, there is to me an implication that everyone is complicit in their government. I mean, we, we all have the government we deserve kind of thing. This is the really difficult part, right? It, yeah. I mean, this is the really difficult part. Is So if we participate in in a situation that's, that, that I'm benefiting by the exploitative, exploitative labor of slaves, are and I complicit, right? And, you know, we've had this conversation here before about you know, where does our responsibility begin? Where does it end? Like, if I don't know clothes are made in a sweatshop, because it's really hard to find out anymore, um, what, even, even, who was that famous, you know, actress person, whoever, who had a line of clothes who didn't even know, like, her <laughs> clothes were being made in sweatshops? It's like, you know, so... Um, no, it was uh, it was it was it was a few years ago. Like I think she was making it for Kmart or was it Jacqueline's? I don't know somebody like that who was who was horrified when she found out, you know, like what was going on. So if she didn't know, like how, how are we supposed to find out where things are made? And um, you know, so where does our complicity begin, and and where does it end? And um, and absolutely, I think the Egyptians here are seen by Torah, whether we agree or not seen by Torah as being, and by God, the character God in Torah, as being complicit, right? As benefiting from Israelite slave labor and continuing to follow Pharaoh blindly and even after even all of these plagues. The mm-hmm. yeah. So, right? So, right? No. What do we... That definitely works for our country, but if you think about, you know, the kids in Syria who've been bombed, and it starts to be more like the slave girl behind the millstone. Like there's... So why why is she why is she losing too? Right? Why does God choose her as well? Because no one's exempt, it seems. That I think that's also I think it's called a merism. Yeah. Like when they talk about heaven and earth, and and so basically it's saying it's a way of an idiomatic way of saying everybody. For, but what but her point is why well, everybody? I understand, right. Right. <laughs> right. Like why? And, and when you say word that works in this country, well, does it? What about the working poor in this country? Right. That, are, are they as complicit as the rest of us, for, you know, who consume, you know, things that we know are, you know, made in a way or or consume services that we know keep other people oppressed? I mean, it's so it's it's more it's a compli- it's a very complicated set of questions. And and none of us have figured out a great way to do it. Right. Um, all right. When you're, when you're coming down on Pharaoh, how many times do we read that God is, has stiffened his heart? So God has an agenda. And even when Pharaoh seems to be on the side of relenting, then a few days go by, or God, it says, it's a little bit of a street operation. Right. Yeah. It's a setup. Yeah. Well, I think the, big, the biggest story here, when you talk about the agenda, the, the end, big, big, big agenda, 
is for God to show the Israelites that God is supreme. In history, that God can even do this to the most powerful nation on earth. And I, I think it goes way beyond Egypt. Okay, that, that, this, is, so this is the God of nature. I mean, we don't necessarily accept that, but, you know, with this parting of the Red Sea, but the God of history and can intervene in human affairs, and so we should say, Micha Mocha, oh my gosh. But th- this is the God above nature. Right, right, above nature. Who, control, who, control. who controls and can interrupt nature. That's what all these plagues were about. Mm-hmm. Right, here's proof to y'all who worship gods in nature. Mm-hmm. Here's your Even proof stronger. that I, I Yudei am stronger than nature. Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking about how in the beginning when the first plague started, there was definite indication that God was all-powerful, the one when the, the magicians then they couldn't do it, but it was a smaller thing. So it's almost like, you know, when things happen in our lives, we say coincidence, or maybe it's a message that we, you know, we have a choice right there to decide what to believe, what to take into our heart. And, and I think I, sometimes I'm waiting for the big one, right? Just to tell me. Yeah, right? But in reality, it's happening all the time. So we, we ignore smaller signs. Right. Like we'll say, we'll say, give me a sign. Right. Right. And so what's that joke about the guy who drowns and goes to heaven and yes. says to God, how could you let me drown? Right. And God was like, I sent you a helicopter. I sent you a speedboat. I said, you know, because the guy keeps waiting, not a helicopter. I'm waiting for a sign. God as a helicopter. I'm waiting for a sign. Right. So we, we wait for the sign sometimes until it's too late. Right. right? That, that we don't recognize the signs all around us. I have a question. I, I confess I didn't uh, do, do a deep dive in the reading. But when Moses comes before Pharaoh, does Pharaoh ever look at him and say, Moses, what are you doing here? I raised you as my son. Is there any he, He's gone. The Pharaoh that raised Moses is gone. Oh, right. he, Moshe is told by God when he's commissioned, uh, for all the people in Egypt that wanted you dead are gone. Uh, okay. So this is not... Pharaoh who raised Moshe. Okay. Now, is this a Pharaoh who knew Moshe on the playground at the palace? <laughs> I don't know. We can assume there were so many princes. Think about how many wives Pharaoh has. Think about the harem. Then think about all of their children. Is the is the heir apparent somebody who knew Moshe? We don't know. If you if you watch the Prince of Egypt, right, the DreamWorks cartoon the rendition of this, they're brothers. They grew up as brothers. Um, but we never have a moment, never in the text, where Pharaoh recognizes Moshe. Now, that could be, I mean, we can read it like Laura would read it. Well, of course they grew up as brothers <laughs> playing together, but Pharaoh can't acknowledge that in front of all, right? So we, we, can, read, we can read it any, any way we want to, that, they, you know, that Pharaoh can't acknowledge Moshe personally because they're playing roles of supreme god of Egypt you know, and ruler, and Moshe's playing spokesperson for God. Um, but, but we never get any indication that, that we know of that, that he recognizes Moshe. It would have been a long time. Moshe's now Midianite in appearance, that, right? So Pharaoh would have grown up from being a prince. So. All right. All right. Let's, uh, so, all right. So we're going to move right from this. Now, notice nothing's happened yet. Nothing's happened. Moshe's being told by God, here's what's going to happen. All right? So God continues to speak in chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the tenth of this month, 
Each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in a way with water, but roasted, hind legs and entrails, over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. Go ahead. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay. So we're getting in in chapter 12 now. So God's continuing to talk, talking about this 10th plague, talking about what's going to happen. And God continues that, and and, um, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but um, the reason this chapter 11 ends in a way that's like, what? So um, uh, 12 says, uh, God says to Moshe and Aharon in the land of Egypt, we're going to read something that says, why does it say in the land of Egypt? Where the heck else would they be? Like Minneapolis? Like what? Like God said to them in the land of Egypt as opposed to France? Like what? You know, of course they're in Egypt. So we'll look at something about that. This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. I did not print out for you because... It was just getting too um, dense, but um, we were talking last week about the sources, J, E, P, and D, and I came across a source that analyzes this text and talks about how P, the priestly author, puts stuff in here, right, to undo some of what D did, (laughs) right, so, um, which is interesting to some of us, Uh, but this this is one of the places that things get changed from. This is a text that says, now this shall be the first of the months of the year for you. When is this? Spring. Spring. Aviv. Nisan shall be the first month for you. Because what was it? Fall. It was fall. It was Tishrei. It was Tishrei. Now it's going to be Nisan. And then later, after the exile, right? So we go back. We go back. So, but there had always been two, two traditions, right, um, going on about when the year starts. Clearly, this author has, it's going to be Nisan. That's going to be, the spring is going to be the uh, beginning of the year. My, the, my Chavruta partner that I study with every week, a rabbi in Colorado, uh, pointed out that uh, this is, she said, this is the first commandment to the Israelites. That 
This is the first commandment we get. This month shall be for you the beginnings of the month. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. So Rosh Chodesh, the rabbis interpret this as Rosh Chodesh, right? You're, you're to mark the first of the month now, and that that's going to be a practice for all time. And so the first commandment given to the Israelites is Rosh Chodesh, which becomes, of course, a women's associated with women, and um, that, that, that this is their first opportunity to observe something. All right. Speak to the whole Edah of Israel. Right? So this is another place where someone says, ah, here's P. Like, Edah. What does Edah mean? Like, it says community in English. So, uh, my notes say Hebrew, Edah is the pre-monarchic technical term for the people of Israel acting as a corporate political entity. <laughs> right? Very fancy. It's a fancy way to say, you can just say the people, right? But when you talk about Edah, you're talking about the community of Israel, right? Edah is what we're going to get when the spies come back, right? And then they use the word Edah, and there's 10 of them. So that's how we get Edah must mean 10, the 10 scouts, is an Edah, they're called an Edah, so, and that's the smallest unit we get of Edah, so that must mean it takes 10 to make an Edah. It takes a minute, that's what a minion is, it's 10, right? Um, using this word Edah. Right, so, the, so this, and then this is a P word, the, the priestly word, right? this is a cultic term. The Edah is going to act as, right? These are cultic instructions being given to the people. On the 10th of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. Each Israelite is supposed to take a lamb into their house on the 10th day. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with the neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Of course, you can't, you can't offer something to God that is imperfect. That would be an insult. You don't do that. You give God your best, obviously. A yearling male, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goat. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month. So they're to take it on the 10th day and keep it in the backyard <laughs> until the 14th day. So for four days, the Israelites have a little yearling sheep or goat in the backyard like there's it's like not inconspicuous right right there's a lot of around the israelite um neighborhood going on for four days and all the assembled congregation right the kahal edat israel so we're getting these words kahal and edah used again um because this is going to be a cultic act that happens um the, what's going to happen? The Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight on the 14th day. So for four days, the, these animals have been hanging out. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. So this is what's happening in Egypt. They are eating the Paschal lamb with matzah, and Maror before they leave Egypt. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted. Uh, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. All of this is cultic practice. With sacrifices, right? You, there's some that you don't leave over until morning. It all has to be eaten that night. And if not, it's burned. It is taboo. Uh, 
Um, this and this is how you shall, how they how are they supposed to eat it? Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it. And we're going to look at Zorenberg about this word because you know Zorenberg loves to give us forty-seven pages on one word of Torah. How are you supposed to eat it? Bechipazon, in haste. Okay, um, you're supposed to eat it bechipazon. Pesach Adonai. It is a Pesach to Adonai. What does Pesach come from? Passover. What does Passover come from? The pass over the houses. That God passes over the houses. So in Hebrew, um, Pesach comes from Psicha. God does a Psicha. God does a leap. God leaps over Psicha, over the houses of the Israelites. So... Aviva Zorenberg finds it fascinating. Many scholars find it fascinating that we get this description and this it's called a Pesach, but God hasn't psichad yet. Right? You shall eat it in Egypt as a Pesach. What kind of a Pesach is it if God hasn't psichad? Right? You're eating it as a remembrance of the psicha that hasn't happened yet. But we know that God has said that God will do that, right? So it's Correct. A, it's, a, it's in, yeah, it's a down payment. You know, it's saying, okay, you said you're going to do that, so here we go. We're eating this in anticipation of, or in, it's like consideration in the contract where you're going to do that, so we're... So no before and after and even before. more than hopeful or faithful or whatever, right, it... You could read this, and and this is like the heart of it, where folks want to like really dig in here is, is there eating it a precursor? Is it necessary for God's psicha to bring it about? To bring it about. Oh, so in other words, it's a partnership. That that they ha- they have to do the blood thing in order for the destroyer to psich- to do a pesach over their house and. Them eating this Pesach means we trust fully that this is going to happen, and that is what, in fact, makes it happen, right? That Sa'aka is what makes God hear and come down, right? That without that, maybe it couldn't have happened. And so some some folks want to read into this, which I really like, is that without them eating the Pesach, the Pesach wasn't possible. Couldn't it be read that God is saying, eat this and get dressed and get your staff in your hand because very shortly I'm going to... Of course. And that Absolutely. Is message here. Be ready. Well, at, more than be ready. It's way more than be ready. Yes, you have to be ready. But you have to eat the Pesach not only ready, but dressed to go. It's right. silly if you're dressed to go and you don't believe you're going. Right? That's just silly. Who who wants to eat with your backpack on and your Samsonite luggage packed beside you and all your valuables in this case? Who who wants to eat dinner at the table like that if you're not going anywhere? Right? Right? But you, if if you have all that packed, it's you you'll feel really. Who would do that if you didn't really believe you were on your way out? It's just you'd feel ridiculous. It's like God is a good mother here and wants his children to be strengthened for a perilous journey. 
So make sure you're ready, right? Because this is not going to be easy. It's like take your vitamins. <laughs> take your vitamins. <laughs> Eat your Wheaties. Well, I was just thinking that um, in relation to God, it's not just belief. It's actions, too. So you got to... You've got to live in this world, and you have to act and have rituals and have practices rather than just up in your head believing. Lovely. So, so I think that's exactly when we when the scholars are asking. It's ridic- It's weird that this is here before it's happened. That they're eating a pesach before there's a psicha. I think that's exactly where our spiritual teachers go is to say because yes, it's crazy, but that's Jews. That's mm-hmm. Judaism. We're crazy because we say yes, we have to act. And we need rituals that are going to strengthen us and and help keep us aligned, keep keep our vitamin count, like keep us optimally prepared, right, for what we need to do in the world. And that you're right, that we're about action, not just about okay, I have faith, I believe. There's not, it's not Jewish. If you believe, then put your sandals on, pack your suitcase, right, get on your travel gear, put on your backpack, and now eat. The Pesach, that's about God having saved you while there's screaming going on outside. Right? Well, you had talked about, I guess three years ago, that what they were asked to do was not only crazy, but dangerous. To have these lambs, making the noise, being slaughtered all at once. There's a lot of noise, putting the blood on the uh, doorposts. So is God testing them? saying, are you ready to buy in? Will you do all this stuff? Because I'm going to take you out. It's going to be hard, but I want to see that you believe what I say I will do because it's not going to get any easier for a long time. So I say I want to go one step further. Is God testing them? I I want to say, I I think God's saying the only way you get to be free is if you opt in. That's the only way. It's not, it's not just a test. It's just right. this is the fact. Unless you opt in, you don't go anywhere. I, I can only do so much. You all have to do something in order to make it happen for you, right? I can't opt in for you, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I think God is – I guess what I'm saying is I think in some ways it's descriptive rather than prescriptive. That this is just descriptive of what is in reality. That unless we take some kind of forward action, no, we we can't be liberated. No, nothing's going to change. We can't be redeemed. Well, it just makes me think about commitment will set you free. You know, you can be on that that that, that precipice, like, oh, should I do this? But when you step in and you commit, that frees you up. It frees you up. That action of intention. Like that's yes. But they're doing a Passover Seder, so how weird that they would be saying, and once we were slaves in Egypt. I mean, on the other hand, it's Dewey Beach Truman. <laughs> right? And, and it's it's something the scholars point out, that it's weird that they're eating matzah and marur, which we eat in remembrance of slavery, and they're eating it in slavery, right? So, But it's it's bizarre, but it makes a crazy kind of sense you know, if we... Um, Pack it as the scholars brilliantly do. Um, Robert? I was just going to comment that the implication of girding your loins is you may have to fight your way out of town. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yep. the implication is mm. it could be that bad. Right. And God says, I can't do it all. You're going to have to have you're going to have to have your sword on. <laughs> right. Like, and, and they're going to have to fight. Go ahead. 
How many of the Israelites did not do this? Did right. Not make the right. Right. It's a very good question, and some folks, some folks want to argue uh, most didn't. Right. Some people want to argue. Um, when we talk about how few Jews there are today, right, and how many Jews choose to assimilate, right? Uh, one of my colleagues, Rabbi Toba Spitzer, talks about, we've always been a remnant people. Always. We've always been a tiny people. Most Israelites were still worshiping Baal and still doing it. Like, we've always been a tiny remnant community that said, okay, we opt in. And that it's no different today that we are, okay, quit whining about how small we are. Quit whining about how many people associate, disassociate from, who cares, she says. I love Toba. She's my classmate. She's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And she says, who cares if we're small? We've done well as a small people. Like, that, you know, we, this when we really focus and the people we're really in are in. And, and so she, I'm not, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but like, I would say that, okay, let's say most people opted out. All right. Who went out? Who went to, into the desert? Who had a Sinai experience? The folks who opted in. And the question is, are we going to opt in or not? And the other thing is I read someone who said, it tells us that they went out as an Arab Rav, as a mixed multitude. And so there, uh, there was one commentary that said, any Egyptian who wanted to and who did this went out also. Like, how else did they go out as an Arab Rav? as a mixed multitude. How, how could that happen if this night, like some, they didn't also have the opportunity to opt in? It's not written here what, what that might look like. And only Jews could eat the Pesach. I mean, only the Israelites could eat the Pesach. But, um, but there has to be a way that other folks joined in, right? And so I, lo- I love that, that, you know, that after what people had seen, it's like when they said, oh, this Yudhei Bavhei thing, I'm t- I, I get it. I'm there, right? I see the signs. I understand that they could opt in. I love that interpretation. And that, so let's say even most Israelites opted out, right? The ones who opted in are our ancestors, right? Because the rest didn't make it. Um, and other folks who also got it came. And that's who we've always been, is a remnant people with folks who choose to join us. Does anybody know? Goodman and Schwerner, who were the two Jewish kids who got killed for registering blacks to vote. I want to know if they were Seder participants. <laughs> right. Did they eat marar? Was that part of what made them go down to the south when it was very dangerous? I would argue that whether or not they participated in Seder, they marinated as Jews in a culture that does Seder. Does that make sense? Like whether they went to Seder as kids or not, they, if, you're, if you're raised as a Jew, on some level you have a consciousness of we were slaves and we were redeemed from slavery. Like, and just that what we owe back is a world where nobody's enslaved. I really feel like we just kind of do fish know there's water around them, or, right? That we that as Jews we we don't even know that we're getting that, but we get that if we're raised in, in this culture. I, I like to I like to think anyway. I, I've always been struck by the excuse me public nature of putting the blood on the on on the door. Because it wasn't just that they were thinking, it wasn't just that they were privately in their houses, but they actually, to me, they had to make a public statement. And the interesting thing is, 
So, and as we get to the book of Deuteronomy, there's also a doorpost, except at that time, which is an evolution, they're asked to put the words of God on the doorposts of your house and, and, and of your gates. And when I was living in Moscow, I faced this question of, do I put a mezuzah on my door? Now, in, in the U.S., there's no issue. But for many people, it's not so much a religious thing as it is of making a public declaration, this is a Jewish house. Right, and, so and think, what does it mean to make right, a public I, declaration? I, I think that for progressive Jews, perhaps we don't put enough emphasis on the power of mezuzah. Not so much that it's magical or whatever, but that it is a public statement, and it's a statement to our families and to ourselves. And I know when I walk into someone's house, or when I go into a building and I walk in a door, and there's a mezuzah on the door, that door and what's inside becomes a little different for me. There's a scholar who, there several scholars look at the language in Torah that says, and it shall be an ot lacha. It shall be a sign for you. Right, not for and God. those scholars want to say it was on the inside of the door, mm-hmm. on the inside of the house. But it wasn't a public statement. It was a statement for each Israelite family to say, okay, we are Israelite. We, you know, mm-hmm. believe we're going out of here tomorrow, right? We opt in, and it was a sign inside for mm-hmm. each family. There's another scholar who um, wrote, I think it was, it's a Christian scholar who was writing about um, I think I told you this already that houses you know could fall down because they're made out of different kinds of things but but anyone who could afford it had a stone mm-hmm. lintel uh, you know doorposts yeah. and lintels because that wouldn't fall down um, and that on the stone would be written the family's name you know like who or you know like it's kind of like the machers you know that we have on the wall out here and that what it's saying is um, you're going to cover that with blood like what's instead of seeing the names, y'all's names, and how important you think you are engraved in stone, what's going on there is the blood that says we opt into something bigger, right? That we're covering up that that we usually lift up as right whatever we want to label stuff and whatever we think is important. You're going to cover that with the blood of right the lamb that you're going to eat that says you opt in to this idea of psicha, that God will leap, and trusting that God will leap. I think this part is really interesting, this portion. It's on the top of page 362 in the Green Book, and they talk about borrowing the gold and silver, and then it says God disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. So all of a sudden, they like us. (laughs) They like us because we're leaving. Is that why they like us? Like, get out. Like, on the one hand, they had been kind of convinced, it tells us, by Moses's, you know, <laughs> dealings and God's whatever, um, that they're convinced. And 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 we're being, we're leaving. They're, right? So... With their gold and silver, which we borrowed. <laughs> get out. We'll pay you to get out. Stop the plagues. Stop the plagues. We're suffering. Like, get, go. With our blessing, go. Because it's a hate, right? Live and be well, far away from us. Right? Um, all right. 
Nothing is non-relevant. This one is. This one is. He assures us. Why on Passover do we not eat lamb as a traditional meal? A lot of people do. A lot of people do. Oh, do they? Yeah. In my tradition, we have not. What did you eat? Brisket. Brisket? Okay. So you ate cow. Looks like a lamb. Lots of people do eat lamb. Absolutely. No, because that's not in here. That's not in here. It's you shall eat the Pesach, the Matzah, and the Maror. And you shall tell the story. When your children ask you, what is this that you do? You shall tell them of that night that I was a slave in Egypt and God freed me from slavery. That's the. That's what we're told to do. The significance of the blood be such an important part of the ceremony, saying, I am an Israelite. We're not enslaved. We're not enslaved. So we're. The blood was for the slaves, right, who were leaving, and then the remembrance of that night is eating the Pesach and eating Maror and eating Matzah, right? We didn't get that far, but that's in chapter 12 that we were just looking at. That's what we're supposed to do to remember that night. Nothing is said about putting blood on the door. Should we make an assumption about the Jews that didn't opt in, didn't put the blood, that they had the same results as the Egyptians That is what some people want to suggest, is that in order for the leap to happen, the Israelite had to have put blood on their lintel or it doesn't trigger the the leap. But other people want to say, how could you say that? Why, you know, of course God left over all the Israelite houses. It wasn't that they were Israelites. They had to opt in. Otherwise, they were just as Egyptians. Yes, that's that's the power. For those of us who say... Affirmative statement, I'm in. For those of us who who say the, the rest didn't make it, right? That's the reason I choose to interpret it that way is because I think it's an important message about we have to opt in. We can't just be Jews. We have to opt in to what that means or what does it mean that we're Jews? Is that blood on the doorpost where some Christians get the idea that Jews use the blood of Christians to make their matzah? I mean, um, I don't know if there's a connection there because they they co-opt that symbol as the blood of Christ. Okay. They go back to an earlier pagan rite, right, of sacrificing, which of course was in Jewish practice as well, um, but they go back to an earlier rite, R-I-T-E, uh, of the blood being what is redemptive from for them from sin. Remember we had this conversation? We don't have redemption from sin. We have redemption from slavery. But the Christian tradition took it to say, what is the slavery that humanity is in? The slavery of sin. And so by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, we become right free. We are redeemed. What are we redeemed from? The sin that keeps us right far from God. Yeah. Huh? Well, she's the Christians. Christian. Yeah. Yeah. The Christians, uh, that, right. Not Jews, so, so they they very much resonate with 
that blood. So I don't think that's the bl- that's not what gets us into trouble. I don't think. So where does that myth that the Jews use blood to make matzah? Um, twelfth century. England. It's a very it good question. Um, well, it, it's earlier actually. Uh, there's a great book called by Trachtenberg called The Devil and the Jews, and it talks about the origins of Christian anti-Semitism, uh, and it goes into great detail about where these things originate. So I will check Trachtenberg. Help me remember. Email me, and I will check Trachtenberg. It, maybe it is this. It could be. It would be. Uh, it would be odd to me that they who resonate so strongly with the blood of the lamb. Like, they love Seder a lot. A lot of Christians do Seder now because it's the Last Supper was a Seder. And this is my blood. You shall drink of my blood. And this is the blood of the lamb. It's, right, you don't get better than that, right, in these texts. I get it. Like, if I were Christian, I'd be all over doing Seder, right? Because here's the blood of the lamb that's so moving, that connection. And so so it would feel counterintuitive to me that that's where it originates, the blood in the matzah, but I could be totally... Wrong. So I'll, I'll check uh, Trachtenberg. One of my employees years ago, it was Catholic, and they did a Seder, and of course they served lamb chops. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's look at the one that looks like this. It's, the, it's oriented a different way from the rest of your texts. This is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Um, I keep a hard folder on every Torah portion, so I have 53 folders. Uh, and you, here's how you know that. Look at the date on the bottom corner of when I received this email. Right? <laughs> but I love it. it. There's some stuff, obviously, that's timeless. This might be from 2005, but this was far older, right? The Exodus text. Like, some things stay timeless for us. So, um, looking at uh, Exodus 12.1 that we just read, Rami reads that verse about this shall be the beginning of months for you. Uh, God says to Moshe in the land of Egypt, and Aaron in the land of Egypt, why does Torah remind us that God said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, don't we know where they are? <laughs> By reminding us where this conversation takes place, Torah is telling us that it is only in the heart of narrowness. Meitzarim, right? So do we remember this, that the word for narrow in Hebrew is what? Tsar. So narrow in Hebrew is tsar. How do you make tsar plural? Tsarim. Right? Sar and Sarim. Now, how do I say God delivers us from the narrows? Meitzarim. Meitzarim. God delivers us, Meitzarim, from this mem here means from. God delivers us from the narrow places. How, if I change the vowels, what does this read? Mitzrayim, Egypt. So, because in the Torah, there are no vowels, the rabbis say, don't read, God delivered us from Mitzrayim, from Egypt, rather, God delivered us, Meitzarim, from the narrow places. And that is happening all the time. All the time, we are delivered when we opt in, we are delivered from Tzarim, from the narrow, stuck ways, right, that we think, feel, Believe, experience, like all of that stuff. So, uh, so why does it say? Why does it say when it seems so obvious that God spoke to Moshe and Aaron in Mitzrayim? Because it's not that we didn't know where they were. Of course, we knew where they were. But God is reminding us: you're going to be. It's only when you're in Sarim that you need to be delivered. 
that one can contemplate, uh, sorry, it's telling us that only in the heart of narrowness, right, Mitzrayim, Egypt, that one can contemplate freedom. Freedom makes no sense if slavery and the possibility of slavery are abolished. What is good without evil, right? Right, makes no sense. Slavery will always be with us. If not slavery of one person to another, then slavery of one person to the ideas and conditions that make up that person's narrow self. It is only in the midst of this slavery that we must commit ourselves to freedom. This is what Torah is telling us. Do not wait to be free before you celebrate freedom, right? Referencing also this whole eating the Pesach, doing all that stuff. Don't wait till you're free to celebrate freedom. Celebrate freedom in the midst of your slavery. And in that way, set your intention on being free. Freedom is not a natural impulse, right? He says it's easier for us to be enslaved, then we don't have to think, right? If I, if I just continue to believe this, I have zero responsibility for the fact that life is terrible because life is terrible. It's horrible. It's always awful. I'm always going to be the victim. It's always going to happen to me. I'm never going to trust anyone again. Why would I do that? I've been hurt, right? As long as we stay there, then I don't have to really do anything, do I? So, so freedom is not the natural impulse for us, even though we think it is. Go down to the next paragraph. This is the message we are to recall each Passover. Not simply that we were slaves and now are free, as if slavery and liberation are once and for all events, but that we are enslaved and in need of liberation again and again. We can even become enslaved to the quest for freedom, becoming anarchists and destroying the necessary supports of civil society in the name of freedom and the sovereign self. I should be able to do whatever I want if I'm totally celebrating freedom, Don't I get to do whatever I want if I'm completely free? It is when you are trapped that you must think of freedom in order to see that you are trapped. It is when you think you are free that you must think of slavery to see that they are always enslaved, that we are always enslaved to one thing or another. Liberation is not once and for all. It is a never-ending dance between the narrow self and the spacious self, capital S, until they both realize that they need each other just as black needs white, up needs down, and in needs out. We'll let you contemplate that. All right, let's go to Larry Kushner. So Lawrence Kushner, The River of Light, page 124. The going out from Egypt, yes? Reconsider the going out from Egypt, not as an historical event or even a mythic one, but as the story of the transformation of consciousness. Yeah, John, you're going to love this one, right? (laughs) For above all, we remember that at the beginning of the story, there were slaves. And at the end of the story, when the children of Israel sang the song at the sea, there were only free people. That in the service and by the strength of the one of being, this has and continues to come about, the transformation. That on account of this event, the very structure of consciousness has been altered. The colored bits of light have been rearranged into a new pattern on the glass. Same glass, same light. But the prism has caused something that has until this moment never been. There are at least four parts to the process, each one of which is recounted in the Exodus narrative. So four parts of the process of consciousness being transformed from slavery to freedom. And we have three of them that we've been reading so far. One... On the 10th of the month, the people are to take each one into their homes, a lamb, the spring lamb, the paschal offering, but above all, a lamb that is also an Egyptian god. 
right? A lamb grows up to be a sheep. What's a male sheep? A ram, right? So there's one of the symbols of the God, a God of Egypt. In every household of slaves who have so nearly assimilated the culture of the oppressor that they cannot even believe Moses when Moses comes to them, there is now even the God of Egypt itself. They must wonder as to the purpose of Moses and their ancient imageless God. They must wonder as they tie the lamb to their most permanent possession, their bed, why everyone must now own the local God. And what will they say to their Egyptian masters when they make inquiries? Does this mean the people of Israel have now become Egyptian? Right? So if everybody takes a symbol of the Egyptian religion into their house, does it mean we've converted? For four days it goes on long enough that it cannot be concealed. And then on the eve of the 14th day of the lunar month of spring, a full moon, Aviv, now called Nisan, Moses tells them to slaughter the lamb god, right? And we read, we read about that already. Does God not know whose house belongs to whom? No, it is a sign. It is not a sign for the one of being. It is a sign for the slaves. It is a choice for them, an existential crisis, an unequivocal deed that may not be ignored, reconsidered, or postponed. You don't get any time to think about this. It's happening now. You do it now or the window closes. The Egyptians know we own the God. They have seen it. Come tomorrow and its blood is on our door. We leave with Moses or they will surely kill us. A slave who can kill the master's God is no longer a slave. And if we are afraid to kill the lamb, then we may not leave with Moses. We may pretend we are still one of the people of Israel, but it will only be pretending. And this then is the first part of the transformation of consciousness. One must irrevocably choose to destroy the God of the oppressor, which you have taken into your home. And let's not be fooled. We have each taken the God of the oppressor into our home. It cannot be done in secret or postponed for even a day. You must stake your very life upon it. Now it is in the hands of the one of being. And Exodus 12, 12, I shall go through Egypt and execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. This is the second stage that the one of being would settle the score. I personally and not an angel. For once the alien God is destroyed, the forces of transformation are set in motion throughout the entire land, all during the night. You must remain in your hut while other powers do their work. Layers of consciousness both within and beyond our psyche are now also freed to continue the work. There is a legend that even the king of Egypt himself, terrified that he might die, sought out Moses on that watch night. But now he could not enter the slave hut. And we imagine that come the next morning, there was not an Egyptian to be found. Streets deserted of masters, open to free people. And we get a quote from Exodus. Thinking they were free, at least until they arrived at the edge of the sea and saw Pharaoh and his chariots behind them. So next week, we will get to the third stage of transformation. So what Rabbi Kushner is asking us is that we, we need to see this not only is our sacred mythology and, and symbolism, but he's saying this is actually what happens Again, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing what happens with consciousness. That, you know, that we have to be will, willing when it's time to kill the God of the oppressor that we have brought in to our own home. And that takes incredible courage to do. Right? When stuff moves in, right, and it's from the oppressor, right? We believe the oppressor is the most powerful. Well, of course we do. 
the stuff we're most afraid of is some of the most powerful stuff we confront, right? It's not the stuff that makes us happy. That's easy, right? It's, it's the stuff we're afraid of. That has incredible power, and we have to be ready and willing to do what it takes to slaughter that God, that symbol of the oppressor, whatever that is for us. It could be a statement, right? This always happens to me, <laughs> right? Who are you to shine and be so fabulous? Right? Whatever it is that we have internalized, we have to be ready and willing to kill it. And then we have to get out of the way while other powers are at work, right? We have to stay in our homes, right, while the destroyer does its thing. We have to be willing to sit. We have to be willing to be quiet and to sit and to let things unfold and to let things happen and to let the things we've set in motion become the new reality, right? We so often want to do, do, do. What's the next step? What do I have to do now, right? And a lot of times what it is, sit still, Sit, right? What is that thing? Don't don't just do something. Sit there, <laughs> right? <laughs> the great meditation teacher. Don't just do something. Sit there, because that's hard for us, right? To let other things work um, on on our behalf. So we'll get to the third and the fourth um, another time. I gave you uh, Aviva Zorenberg on bechipazon and what it means to eat in haste. I have one more thing for you. I promised you last week that I would give you. I have sent to each of you through Eleanor. Uh, the link to the talk that Rabbi Jonathan Slater gave on the shadow self that we talked so wonderfully about last week. Thank you, Laura, for the question that prompted that last week. He introduces a text, a Hasidic text that he teaches from uh, in that webinar. Uh, And so I'm going to give you that text. If you don't use it, that's fine. But if you do want to follow him on the webinar and you want to listen to it, or I think it's on Vimeo, so you watch it on Vimeo, um, then this is the text that he's teaching from. So I wanted to make sure you have that. If you, if I don't have your email, make sure I get it. Because when I want to send you links like this, and I promise you I'm going to do that through Eleanor, um, I want to be able to reach you. Okay, great. So if you didn't get it or if, uh, if you're concerned we don't have your proper email, just let me know. I'm going to close. I know I'm keeping you a little bit over. I want to close with one quick teaching. I wish Pam Witt were here. Her parents both fell this past week, uh, and so she has to be with them. So we're going to... Hold them in our prayers for healing when when we're done, because um, she loves this stuff. When when I teach from Hasidic texts that talk about because God passed over the house of the Israelites and saved the firstborn uh, in our Torah portion this week in chapter 12 later it says Kidashli Bukhor that you Israelites shall sanctify for me the firstborn, right? And we know that Kidash. Kiddush, all that stuff in Hebrew has to do with setting apart, setting aside. The firstborn are set aside for God because of this thing that happened with God leaping over their houses. So Kiddush li Bechor, sanctify for me, set aside for me, Bechor, the firstborn. So this is a Hasidic teaching. Bechor, hu hamachshevah ba'boker. What is the Bechor? What is the first? The firstborn? I'm not reading from the pages I gave you. This is the link from Oh, this, this is this is me reading something that I'm bringing to you. Bechor who boker. The bechor, the firstborn, is the first thought that arises in the morning. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Shut Okay, That this is saying, sanctify for me the firstborn, set aside for me the firstborn. What does that mean? 
This is the first thought that comes to us in the morning, that we are supposed to sanctify that and set it aside and have it be for God. This is, this is about love. And this is about the midot, about all of the ways that we can live into spiritual characteristics. And this is in complete opposition to, this is the opposite of when our first thought in the morning falls to the sitra achra, to the dark side, to the other side. Nikra bechor mitzrayim. That's called the firstborn of Egypt. Right? Because there's two firstborns happening in our story. The bechor mitzrayim and kol bechor mitzrayim. Every bechor, every firstborn of mitzrayim, dead now. Bechor Yisrael, the Bechor of the house of Israel, right? Kideshli, you know, that you will be saved, it shall be sanctified to me forever because it was, those firstborn were saved. Um, that we have in the morning the absolute, invi- not only invitation, but here from Torah, says the Hasidic tradition, the commandment to make our first thought in the morning be Bechor Yisrael, to be an Israelite firstborn and not Bechor Mitzrayim and not thoughts that are you know, um, of the aspect of the dark side. So that our, our it, it's really, and the person who wrote this says, I hate to get up in the morning. It's a fact, right? Right. And, and, that, and he says, and I, and I find waking up to a blaring alarm clock is worse than waking up by myself, though that's bad enough. Right. So it's not saying we're, it's not saying we're bad people. It's saying when we wake up, a lot of us, it's not our first instinct to say, yay. I'm alive another day. Yay, everything's working. Yay, I woke up, right? A lot of us, our first instinct is, uh, really? Already? Already? I mean, every time the alarm rings, I'm like, really? Already? I could sleep 11 hours every day, happily. Happily. And so, for some of us, it's not the first thing. Okay, kideshli bechor. All right, so the commandment is kideshli bechor. Sanctify to me the first thought. So we have a choice. We wake up and go, uh, now we have a choice to say, grateful am I before you, O God. Right? That you return to me, that you gave me back my soul. We have that option. And so uh, to take this story to yet another level is that every single one of us has the opportunity every day to have that first intention of the day be not Bechor Mitzrayim, uh, not the firstborn of Egypt, but the firstborn uh, of the Israelites dedicated to believing, trusting, acting that day in ways that will bring about not only our redemption, because that's not the only thing we're committed to, but bringing about the redemption of the entire world. That out of our freedom, out of our ability to choose how to act, out of our ability, because we are free, uh, to make choices that impact our community and the world, we have the opportunity and the obligation every day as Jews to set a mindset that says, I will go out today and do whatever it takes to see that other people are free and have the same rights and responsibilities and opportunities that we do. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org